We're good? All right. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dirk Didaskalou, and uh, it's my honor to be here um, for reInvent 2018. And I think the next hour, um, I'll try to spend and talk about how we help our customers solve some really big business problems with AWS IoT. And typically, all of the customer engagements that we have at IoT start with one simple question that we ask our customers that goes like, if you knew the state of everything, every asset that you have, and you could reason on top of that knowledge, what problems would you solve? And we made it our job that the two conditions of knowing the state of everything and being able to reason on top of that data comes true for our customers so they can concentrate on their business problems. And customers of ours solve business problems with IoT through all sectors. Whether you have Pentair, which is a manufacturer of filtration systems, and they sell to brewers around the world, or fish farms, and then they instrument the filters and figure out how can they prolong the health of their filtration systems, and by doing so, then, of course, also the health of the fish. And when you think about that aqua farms nowadays are almost as big as airplane hangars, you can imagine how important it is that the fish inside these hangars are actually healthy. And they already produce more than 50% of all fish that we consume on this planet. Or a company like Module, they built something like a smart belt that you can put around your waist for workers. That's for worker safety. Because they figured out that there are still hundreds and hundreds of just forklift-related accidents with quite a few deaths. And their idea that they had is saying, OK, if I could instrument the movements, the situation, I can warn, I can vibrate, saying, careful, there's danger. Or for those who love music under you, um, I don't know whether you know Fender, who's producing these iconic guitars. You could say, wow, that's a pretty um, manual process. And they use AWS IoT and Greengrass and even the IoT button to optimize their flow throughout their factory and QA systems, how they then glue and uh, uh, the different pieces of wood together. So in a nutshell, IoT you can use through all of the different type of use cases, whether it's healthcare, where, for example, we have Philips Healthcare, which built their health switch digital platform on top of AWS and AWS IoT. Or whether you talk about making your products and better over time, iRobot. You might have heard about the producer of the Roomba robots that are the vacuums at home. They actually get better over time. They learn when they map out your home. And that was made possible via the use of AWS and AWS IoT in the back end. Or Trimble, a company which sells measurement equipment for construction companies or other measurement equipment for uh, farms um, to do um, smart farming. And they typically buy three to six companies every year which have their own devices and their own platforms. And they built now something what they call T-Pass. That's their own platform where they can integrate hundreds of thousands, if not millions of devices from their acquisitions into one platform at once with the help of device management. Um, so you see tons of other stuff, or NL, energy efficiency. Again, uh, using AWS IoT or Greengrass for energy efficiency, even the home via the gateways, or what they call the manufacturing side, which, of course, is the power plants. So if you try to separate this, you could think IoT helps in essence with two areas of the business equation. Either it helps you with the top line, means you get new revenue because you can either do new products like Module, which weren't possible beforehand, or you can make products like iRobot, which get better over time. Or you can also have a better engagement with customers. And we'll talk about Visio. We'll talk a little bit about how can you have better customer engagements. Or you look at your bottom line and saying, is, OK, what is my cost? How can I improve? You heard about Fender, which is really trying to increase the efficiency. That's one part. Or you can also think about, oh, right, how can I optimize my entire supply chain with data-driven parts? And we hear a little bit out later what Bayer is doing in food processing. So, Tons of benefits you get, either what you already do and you do it better, or it allows you to do new types of products and services which weren't possible beforehand. So what do you need? What do you need in order to be able to do this? So we call this the fundamentals of IoT. And in essence, it's just three things. The first part is you need device software. You need software that you can connect your devices and operate them at the end, at the edge, because that's where the things come into play. Then you need something what we call control services for devices. So you want to have your devices to securely connect, 
to the cloud. You want to control them and manage them. So that's the part of the control services. And last but not least, you don't do this just for fun. Of course, you want to get insights out of the data. That's why we call us the IoT data services, which more or less answer the question, how can you extract value from your IoT data? And we have built over the last three years a bunch of services, which typically start with the word AWS IoT in all three areas. And I will go through all of them. That was what we already had. And I will launch with you today a few more, which hopefully help our customers to solve even more important problems. But I don't want you to believe that this is a standard software stack, yeah, which comes hard from the bottom, and then you, the higher you go on the higher level. I think IoT is much better thought of like a circle, because it's not just a one-way street. It starts with the device software, as I said again, where you can collect the data locally via sensing. Then you send the data into the cloud via control services, and you make sense of the data with your data services in order to get your insights, your analytics, which help you then take better actions. And of course, when you want to take an action in the physical world, you go back to the devices, you control them, they do something, hopefully improve your process, or have a new product, which you hadn't had before, and it all starts again. So that's what we call the IoT virtuous cycle, which is, I think, a much better description than just the layer structure that we had potentially thought of in the past. And I will go through now each of those areas, explain to you what is it that we offer and how customers use them. And I'll start with the device software, because essentially, um, if you don't connect the device, it's not part of IoT, because a thing needs to connect to the internet. And uh, when you believe our um, analyst friends, they always draw this fabulous, what I call canonical graph, which is nothing else than exponential curve, saying is there will be billions of connected devices, and there are already today. And how do you connect billions of devices to the internet? You need an element, which is a tiny little chip. You need a connectivity module, and need some little compute in order to do so. And the vast majority of devices that are connectors, old sensors, are today based on something what we call a microcontroller. And there's roughly 20 billion microcontrollers sold every year. 20 billion microcontrollers. That compares to roughly half a billion CPUs. And CPUs is what you have in your smartphones or in your laptops or the majority of the, <laughs> the, the server's infrastructure that we have. But it's roughly a 40 to 1 um, difference in size, market sizing for microcontrollers. And the reason is they're so darn affordable in order to avoid the word cheap. Because that's how you can really connect everything. Every LED light bulb today has a microcontroller in it. So, but if you wanted to connect now, let's say, every light bulb, every thermostat, every machine, doing so is actually pretty hard because these microcontrollers, they're very small. And not only small in size, but small in power. It means compute power and memory. So you typically need an embedded developer who now needs to try to figure out, OK, how do you connect this thing? What connectivity stacks do I use? How do I secure this? And by the way, oh, if I make something wrong, how do I update this? And this is why we launched something which we call Amazon Free Artos, which is a free and open source microcontroller OS, which is based on the world's leading embedded real-time operating system kernel called Free Artos, which we took stewardship last year. And it helped you exactly with this key problems of saying is, how can I connect my microcontrollers? Because it has now in the open source library for local connectivity, like Wi-Fi or Ethernet. It gives you also all of the capabilities you need to interact with the cloud. That is, can I understand messages like MQTT? It also gives you security libraries, because one of the most important things in IoT is security. So that means, how can I make sure that my microcontroller can handle certificates? How can I make sure that it can encrypt data that comes via TLS? And last but not least, we also launched what we call an over-the-air update service, which is optimized for little throughput through the channels, and then also does something what we call code signing, which guarantees the integrity of your code before you update that. And today, the vast majority of microcontroller um, vendors support it, whether this is Texas Instruments, ST Micro, Microchip, um, NXP. We have uh, uh, Infineon had launched. We have Xilinx having launched. And um, you can go out now and get these chips already p-ported with Amazon FreeRTOS in order to connect your devices very easily. And we just yesterday announced a new addition to those open source libraries, which is called Bluetooth Low Energy. And you could argue, OK, what's the big deal about Bluetooth? 
The big deal about Bluetooth Low Energy is if you want to have a battery controlled device which lasts for years, then you can't use Wi-Fi because it uses too much energy, so your battery would drain. And um, typically those devices need an intermediary because Bluetooth doesn't connect to the internet, but you all have one in your hands. It's called a mobile phone or smart device. So if you have an Android device, or if you have an iOS device, typically that acts as a hub or specialized hubs that you can have um, in, in, in different type of deployments. So now you can really build with the same ease that you could have built beforehand Amazon Freeautos devices, also those very long-lasting um, battery power devices. And you could argue, why is Amazon Web Services, the protagonist of the cloud, taking so much effort talking about the edge and even making an open source operating system? And um, whether we like it or not, there are a few things on this world which you can't fix with code. And uh, we said this is what we call the law of IoT, because even with the progression of time, we believe that will still be true. One of them is the laws of physics. I mean, if you don't have connectivity in a mine, or you don't have connectivity on a oil rig, I can write as much as code as I want in the cloud. You simply can't connect and get this data into the cloud. Or the speed of light, sometimes, even though it's pretty fast, might be too slow for security-relevant applications because you want to have your machinery in the factory immediately react if there's something going wrong. So that's what we call the law of physics. The other reason might be you simply can't afford to send all of the data into the cloud. And the reason is there's an immense growth of data generated today, but unfortunately, the cost of transmission is not going down as fast. And it's very simple because bandwidth is finite, but apparently you can create more and more data than you want. And last but not least, there is what we call the law of the land. You all have heard about regulations. I mean, certain things can simply not happen because of our governments around the world, or you yourself or your company decides that you don't want to have certain data transmitted across the globe. So as long as you believe that these three laws continue, that money rules because it's too expensive, or there is still the laws of physics, or there is the law of the land, we need to understand that IoT only works when the T is part of the I, means when you handle the edge. And when you think about this and saying, is okay, one of the big questions we had them from our customers was, how can I now bring the capabilities that you built in the cloud to the edge? How can I run this locally, in my factory, in my home, on my oil rig, in my mine, even though I don't have internet connectivity? And the answer to this was something which we call Adobe's IoT Greengrass which is a bunch of software, which is a runtime, which you can install on CPU-based devices. And we explicitly put it down so that it's work on very cheap devices. So you can run it more or less on every ARM or x86 processor. It needs very little memory, just 32 megabyte. We don't talk about gigabyte. And the idea was, if you have a small little gateway or a machine which is a little bit of RAM left, you can install it, and it brings you the four fundamental building blocks of IoT from the cloud to the edge. One is you want to make sure that your local devices can still communicate. So it has something like a message bus. It sends messages and routes messages on behalf of all of the other um, devices at the, at the edge. Then you want to take some actions. And at AWS, we propagate something which is called serverless. So ideally, if you want to take an action, you give us some code and the executors. It's called a Lambda function. And Greengrass also includes something like a Lambda runtime so that when you have a Lambda function that can work in the cloud, it can also run and execute on the device. Then again, we talk about security. Um, we also want to make sure that all the local devices are actually authenticatable, that they are the right devices. So Greengrass also acts as a certificate authority. If a device connects and has a TLS endpoint in the cloud, or it has it to a Greengrass core, the device doesn't need to know. But Greengrass Core acts as a certificate authority, and we make sure that you also rotate your um, certificates regularly when you connect your Greengrass Core. And it can also do automatic data and state sync. And then it has a few capabilities which are unique to the edge. One is what we call local resource access. That's not something you need in the cloud, because that depends on the device on which Greengrass runs. It might have a camera, so access the camera. It might have a big file system, access the big file system. It might have a GPU for acceleration. So that's what we call Greengrass local resource access. It also has over-the-air updates, not for the Lambda functions. Greengrass, you just send it a message, and it can change the Lambda function and the behavior all the time. But it can also update itself so that it gets always new capabilities. And last but not least, it has also something what we call 
machine learning inference at the edge, but a little bit more about this in a second. So when you know, that's what we did in Greengrass. And just yesterday, we announced a few additions to Greengrass, um, which we believe are very important features, specifically when you want to build applications at the edge. So think about it. You would like to build an application at the edge and say, wow, wait a minute. There's a lot of other services which I could just use to enhance my app. What about if you could have a system which recognizes your washing machine is broken, so your washing machine is getting down. Wouldn't it be nice that you can just call ServiceNow and then give you an alert and have a technician sending to you? Or you would like to have a logging system locally, which is from Splunk, and then you just go there and want to log in over there. Or you just want to send data to, for example, Kinesis or Firehose in the cloud. Before, and you'd had all to build this in a Lambda function and push it down to Greengrass. Now this is readily available, what we call Amazon uh, AWS Greengrass connectors. And we launched this together with something which we call the Local Secrets Manager. And the reason for this is very simple. All of these services, ServiceNow or Twilio or Splunk, normally a human being would go and log in. Now you want a machine to log into the same services, and you don't want to have your credentials stored on this local device. So the idea is you can, in one part, which is the secrets manager in the cloud, have all of your credentials stored and handled, and we make sure that they were put down for the time of the logging in. We do this with a token system so that you don't have to store yourself any of the credentials. And if you have a hardware security module, that's the last part, which is to call the hardware security integration, then you store all of your secrets in the best place on the hardware where it's most protected. So another thing which I would like to bring up is something which has to do with my heritage. Um, it might sound crazy when you hear my German accent, but I'm actually half Greek. And in my father's tongue, we have a funny word. It's called oxymoro. And I think in English, we have a similar word, it's called oxymoron. And an oxymoron is a word which is a contradiction by itself. And I think in IoT, we have the perfect oxymoron. It's called machine learning. Because in my world, machines are on the factory floor in the shop. And I don't know about you, but I haven't seen any machine which has ever learned anything. So you could argue, when we talk nowadays about machine learning, we talk about something which should have been called cloud learning. Because when you want to do deep learning with nested neural networks and fitting hundreds of thousands of parameters, you need a lot of compute and a lot of storage, um, which you then do in the cloud. But once you have trained your model, using the model for a prediction, or what we call inference, needs much less compute. And that's what you can bring to the edge. And then you then talk about this inference and the edge cycle. And I come back now to my virtual cycle, where you have the devices which sense the data, Via the control services, you bring it into the cloud. The data services like analytics cleanse it. You bring it to Amazon SageMaker. You train your models. Then with the feature of ML inferencing, you can bring it back to your device locally into the green grass core. And now the machine looks like it became more intelligent because it can make a prediction. And believe it or not, there's a lot of people now out, specifically in the device manufacturers, who call this AIoT. Most likely, they were a little bit um, jealous that there weren't the latest buzzword after IoT, which was a great buzzword, now AI, AIoT, buzzword which I picked up in Taiwan when you talk to all of the manufacturers. But it's actually true. With this one, you can now beat this oxymoron in making machines actually look like have learned. And that was the ML inference um, feature that we put down for Greengrass. And we have a very new feature which launched literally today, which makes it integratable with a brand new feature that we launched for SageMaker, that was called Neo. And I don't know whether you potentially have missed that, but there was an announcement made on Monday that we created a new extension of Amazon SageMaker, which is called Amazon SageMaker Neo, which does something which goes like this. Instead of just learning a standard model, which depends to the framework that you use, so whether you have TensorFlow or MXNet, and then deploy that very same artifact down to the edge, there is something what is called a deep learning compiler. And the deep learning compiler is then optimizing that module as small as it gets to a size which is just one hundredth of the standard size of a standard machine learning model. And it also packages together with the framework. And then you can deploy this back on Greengrass where we have something called a deep learning runtime so that it's not only much smaller, but it's also much faster. And this is really significant. 
Because in the past, when you talk about machine learning in the edge, typically you needed something like specialized FPGA or GPU. Now you can have for a hundredth of the size, we don't talk gigabyte anymore, megabytes. You can run this on a Raspberry Pi, and a side effect of this in the optimization that the deep learning compiler does, it also runs faster. We actually did some benchmark, and we were able to reproduce that you can have consistently two times better performance than even hand-tuned models. So think about it. Much smaller means much cheaper. On small little cameras, ten tens of dollars now you can run machine learning. It's faster. And if you now send data back to the cloud, if your inferencing is not delivering the results, and you continuously train them with the other services that we announced, and then you redeploy, you actually get finally to that you continuously improve and literally have your machine learning. So I believe very significant now, and again, available as of today. That was what I wanted to talk about in the device software space, because it's important that you have all of this controlled software available on your devices. And of course, the next question was, and this actually the original first question that our customers asked us was, okay, but if I have many of those devices, how do I securely connect them to the cloud? It's not just one device. What if it's 100,000? What is a million? What if it's 10 million? Or some of our customers going to the 100 million of devices? And that was the first service that we launched, which was called AWS IoT Core three years ago. And it does essentially that. It's a security service for identifying any type of IoT devices, specialized protocols like MQTT, HTTP, or WebSockets. Yeah? It is a data ingestion service and connectivity service. It routes your data, it synchronizes your data, and makes it available to applications. And we have pretty great success. Um, when you've heard Andy saying is it's really a fast-growing area of IoT. And one thing what we learned from our customers was that the more you use this, the more data you actually want to ingest. And again, one of our goals is always, even it might sound counterproductive, to innovate on our customers' behalf even if we go into our own top line. And we launched something called Basic Ingest, which allows you to ingest massive amounts of data to a vastly cheaper price. If you don't need all of the bells and whistles of a message broker and pops up, you can directly ingest data which makes it up to 75% cheaper, and DNA, MOV, which is, for example, a, it's the um, taxi hailing app in Japan, um, and they want to ingest a lot of data, not only the position and fair information to the dispatcher network, and for that, it makes it so much more affordable for them to really roll out across the entirety of Japan. Yet again, simpler features, but at the end of the day, massive savings when you build your IoT applications. And once you have your IoT devices connected, then you realize there's actually a lot of them. And the question is not only once I connect them, how do I make sure that my fleets, now we talk about fleets, how do I keep them secure? And how can I make sure that these fleets do what I want to do? And we started that journey with Philips. I mentioned Philips before, and, and they built their health suite little platform on top of AWS IoT. And they said, yes, we have something like MRI machines in the hospital, and we have connected toothbrushes. And we have something like TV sets, millions of them, very different. How do I handle that? How do I make sure that I understand where they are, what's the state, how do I update that? And that's why we built AWS IoT Device Management, which does essentially answering these questions. A, you can handle many devices at once, which is called batching. Secondly, it has something which we call a fleet index. You can now answer questions like, find me all of my devices in a certain region with a certain firmware version, which are running at a certain temperature or RPM. And then you, once you found them, that is what we call the, uh, the search around real-time uh, fleet indexing, then you want to do something. You want to initiate a job. And the job might be as simple as do nothing or shut them down or update their firmware. So that's what we call then our jobs and over-the-air updates. And we also launched just yesterday a bunch of more, more technical features. One of them is that we have more um, automatically indexed lifecycle events. So for example, from the connection uh, parts of when did your device connect, when did it disconnect, that you have an automatic indexing of those. We have dynamic groups, means you can now combine groups and saying is, okay, whenever a device gets online, automatically add it to my group. If it gets offline, automatically remove it. Um, we then have dynamic jobs. Think about an OTA rollout. We have customers who have literally tens of millions of devices. And you don't want to make 
or let's say like this, you don't want to have any issues when you make a firmware update or rollout. So typically strategies there go, have a small little amount of devices, roll firmware up first, figure out whether it works, and then you go exponential. So these type of dynamic jobs are now also part of device management. And last but not least, what we already had for Amazon Free Artos, now we make available to everyone, everybody, and any type of code. Now we offer code signing. So whatever code you push, it doesn't have to be Amazon Free Artos code. Can be your own, can be on your own hardware, can be on your own operating system. We allow code signing so that you have the peace of mind that you can check the integrity on your device so that it's not tampered with before you execute this. And um, I already talked about security because checking the code and the integrity is in reality a security features. And we take security very, very seriously at AWS. We put a stick in the ground when we started with the AWS IoT Core in the beginning because we don't allow you to connect to our services, neither in the cloud or to Greengrass, if you can't identify yourself. So you need to be able to handle certificates. We don't allow you to talk to us if you cannot encrypt, like TLS 1.2, to transport layer security. So that was something which is very important. We have policy management. So that's all um, preemptive security postures that you have. But what if something happens over time with your fleet? That's why we launched last year AWS IoT Device Defender, which is two functionalities. One is a continuous audit feature. Specifically, when you have people in the field who bring up all the time new devices, what happens if, for example, I use a certificate which was already used? So I would not be able to distinguish between devices. That's something what is our audit, so it aud or continuously monitors for best practice and security. And the other part is the detect function. So what if you try to identify patterns which are out of the ordinary? Think about a device in a factory which on a Sunday night starts sending large amounts of data to a foreign IP address. So you, ideally you detect this immediately, get immediately alerted, and then you can mitigate. So that's what IoT Device Defender does for you, auditing at scale and detection of anomalies at scale and alerting. So that was what I wanted to start first with, and I thought now I felt it was good timing to get Bill Baxter on stage from Visio because he can tell you what problems they solve with these type of control services and what their customers say about this. So, good to have Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Do my best. Um, can everyone hear me? Um, I hope you guys learned somewhat from our journey at Visio as we went down this IoT path. Uh, we started many, many years ago. Uh, and we were looking, you, you might think it, it would be all about Alexa, but it really, it really isn't. There are other things that you'd want to do as a decision maker in an organization that could either increase revenues or decrease customer support costs or whatever. And that was really a large driving impetus behind how we can manage a fleet of millions and millions of devices uh, in real time, generating billions of data points a day and do it cost effectively. But before I dive into that, I want to brag about Visio for a bit. Uh, you might know about Visio. Uh, uh, there's a lot of Americas in this phrase. We're the number one American-based smart TV brand in America, which seems a little redundant. That's a simple way of saying we're number two behind a bigger brand. But I feel good as number two, so I don't even take it personally. But the marketing department likes the number one thing there. Um, you know, our, our philosophy behind smart TVs is that you go buy a TV, you bring it home, and it better fit in, or you're just going to take it back, or you're going to complain a lot about it and call our customer service at uh, $11 per call, average call. Um, and so that's not good. So we want to make sure our TVs fit in well. And as the smart home evolves, I think many people have recognized the smart TV will become more and more of a central piece of how that works initially as a good player in that smart home ecosystem, but eventually as uh, a home dashboard, if you will, or the centerpiece of your smart home uh, from, a, from a, a home control perspective. Um, with this in mind, in 2015, we developed SmartCast OS. That's our smart TV and audio OS. It runs across our speakers and TV products. It's a content-centric uh, smart TV system. Um, and, uh, and it's multimodal control, so you can do anything you can do with the TV, you can control with your mobile phone over the internet or 
uh, with your voice or with a traditional remote control, which people still, believe it or not, really like to have available to them. Um, and what we've added with IoT, among other things, is Alexa-compatible voice control. And very quickly, we became the number one Alexa-enabled smart TV in the United States. And um, if I can leave you with one message, um, it's that it's much easier than you would think to do this. It is much easier. Uh, within two days, we had a prototype working. And within a few months, we deployed to millions of TVs without any disruption of service whatsoever. It was awesome. Um, another thing I want to talk to you about, about Vizio, is you know, we've won over 30 awards this year for our TV products. And, and we win awards across the, across the board uh, for our P-Series Quantum. It's the number one ranked LED TV. Sound and Vision just made us their top pick. Uh, and you can see the P-Series is doing well across the board. So these TVs are very well received. And what Vizio is known for is, is crushing that other number one uh, brand on pricing, offering better functionality. So our P-Series Quantum sells for about half the price of, of that other brand's TV. Um, and it has at least as good, if not better, picture quality. Um, and, and so you got to ask yourself, why do you do that? How do you make money? Um, and, and I'm telling you, it's tough. This is a tough business. Don't get me wrong. The way we make money is we control our costs on the TV. We don't inject a lot of bomb cost into our products. And we give you as much feature and functionality as we can as a result of that. And, and here is an area where when we added IoT, it's not like I was going to add a bunch more memory to go do IoT. I needed to manage it within the footprint of our existing installed fleet, as well as what we would be doing forward. And despite all the lies, memory prices just don't seem to be going down. So you know, uh, it's not like we're going to throw in 4 gig or 8 gig or 16 gig into these TVs. So what problem were we really trying to solve? Uh, it's really we wanted to deploy this robust, scalable, cost-effective infrastructure across all of our smart TVs and speakers to deliver new functionality. Like I said, we had a lot of applications in mind. It wasn't just Alexa Voice, although that's a great feature benefit. That leads to higher customer stat. That means we're going to have more word of mouth sales, and we'll have more viral sales, and so things will be great. There were more things than just, uh, than just voice. Uh, we wanted to be able to have real-time device analytics. We wanted to be able to reduce customer call times by being able to have a customer service agent, be able to have a mirror of what the state of that device is, and, and also be able to remote control that device. And there were a bunch of these features that we wanted to have available to us. Um, we needed it to be highly available. I mean, uh, you know, th this is a tough business. You've got, you're generating billions of events a day, um, and, uh, you know, is that my core competency? Do I really want to be in the business of building a highly scalable platform that can do that? Or I want to be in the business of building a, a great TV and then monetizing that TV the best I can. And that's what we do. We focus on our core competencies. And we needed a platform where the, the core competencies of that platform would be on this high scalability, high availability. Uh, it has to be super low latency. Um, it couldn't add any more bomb costs. Like I said, this is a very low margin business. You know, I'm, I'm not going to add more memory on top of it just to have this. And in addition to that, I don't want to pay a lot for the services as well because then I, you know, I sold that TV at 6% margin maybe. You know, that 6% margin is going to have to last how many years unless I generate revenue off of it downstream. Um, I also wanted it to interface with popular development frameworks. Uh, uh, you know, it's sad and, and true, and maybe there'll be a renaissance, but most of the good embedded developers are retiring. Um, so it's really hard to get people to write code. And even if you did have them, it takes four to six months to do a device deployment at scale when you go through the entire R&D lifecycle, plus then uh, the slow rollout of the deployment. So it takes a long time to do embedded development. So we wanted to move up the framework stack. We wanted to bring in more cloud developers, more web developers. And so that's what we did. And we wanted whatever we picked 
to have a road of complement, a roadmap of complementary services. And as you saw in Dirk's presentation, that's what really excites us. I don't have to go off and innovate in all these areas because I can trust that his teams are actually hard at work doing that for us. And that's why AWS IoT was the logical choice. We were in a builder by decision uh, when, we, when we got into a discussion with Amazon about how we could move forward. And we decided to consolidate our uh, IoT solution around AWS IoT Core. And I want to go back and I want to I say one more thing here. One of the best things about this engagement was we had already built a TV that was bizarrely internet connected. There wasn't anything you couldn't do that you couldn't do over IP or Bluetooth low energy or something like that. What we didn't know is when you looked at the, 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 the incredible amount of things that you needed to know to do this, you know, which pieces did we need? And Amazon Consulting came in, and within two days, like I said, we had a prototype working. Um, this is essentially our, our, the CTO tech stack. This is, you know, this is low on detail, but the most important thing about this is you've got our TV, the Edge device, which is really just a Linux-based TV. Uh, the apps are HTML, JavaScript, and, and the way we connect to our TVs is through uh, a web services layer that's based on Python. And so AWS came in with a Python SDK for AWS IoT Core. We were able to plug that in, and instantaneously, just from that point, we were able to now connect to the rest of the AWS IoT infrastructure. And then all these other functionalities we brought in as a result. Um, I won't go into too much detail here, but what I will say is we didn't really have to write a lot of code. This is our code. You know, we had to write some Lambda bindings, so we had to implement some Lambda functions. They weren't that hard. Um, we had our own authentication server, but then what it enables is all of these devices over here and services are now able to connect through here, talk to these things in real time. They're not polling the internet, you know, using up bandwidth. They're just waiting for event-based notifications. Uh, and then we get all this goodness around all the Amazon uh, Alexa infrastructure to make them work, and it was really super easy. So the advantages we got out of it, first of all, we rolled this out to over four million devices, um, and it was to people who had bought that TV years ago, and they're like, oh, wow, I have Amazon Alexa integration. You know, and we're committed to customers. We want to deliver more functionality in the cloud to make sure that they get more for the value of buying a Vizio TV, and we were able to do that, and that was one of the big benefits, but not, not, the, not the biggest necessarily. Um, we have this worry-free infrastructure right now. I can't even tell you how much, uh, how stressful Black Friday is for us at Vizio. Um, we're bringing on so many TVs right now, it's ridiculous, and it, it always makes me wonder who would schedule this conference right then, but, but having, <laughs> but given that the infrastructure is so worry-free, it's generally, if there is a problem, it was our bug, unfortunately, so. Uh, but it is worry-free, it's very scalable. And we don't have to think of, you know, do we need to bring up more and more? It's really cool. We integrated this with Amazon Analytics, and we're using uh, uh, QuickSight. And I got to tell you, we're getting really good insights into our devices already, and we haven't even begun. Uh, we were using other services, a hodgepodge before, and now we've been able to consolidate them and, and use Redshift in order to warehouse all of this data. And it's a pretty awesome system already, and we just got started. Um, like I said, you know, cost reduction is important for us. So we're going to add by adding the service. So now we have to offset that something either by revenue or other cost reductions. So the next phase of this journey is we'll be working with our customer services team to be able to take the device shadow service and be able to look at the device and see what state is in. So that when a customer calls up, we don't have to tell them, well, go find your remote control and push the menu button and do this and do that. And I tell you, I've sat on customer service calls and that's the first $11 of the call. And then you get to solve it. So uh, it's really important if we can reduce those call times, having real-time insights into specific devices. And then lastly, it's really all the new stuff. The best is yet to come. There are going to be new hybrid voice experiences. They're visual. They're voice. There's exciting things to come that users will be blown away that they got. Um, so that's our journey. Uh, I hope you guys give it a try. It was very easy. And thank you very much. Thank you. All right, thank you.
so awesome. He, he more or less showed what they did. I mean, kudos to Visio. Everything, uh, you remember my third slide of products that get better over time and customer engagement and more top line and cheaper? Apparently, it's all possible when you just use this new technology. But even though he bragged about how fast it was, and it, I guess it's because they are really clever. They have really good engineers. One of the biggest problems still is, despite all of the services that we have, how do we actually build IoT applications fast? Because there's still a ton of different devices. He talked, I don't know, how many SKUs do you have? Bill, how many SKUs? 30. There are customers who have thousands. Remember Trimble? Thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of different devices. How do I put them all together? What if they speak different protocols? What if they were never made to speak together? And we were thinking really hard about how can I build IoT applications faster if I were a customer? And we came up with an idea which was actually originating originally in our Amazon.com, in our consumer business. And we launched last night a service called AWS IoT Things Graph which allows developer to connect devices and web services simply together with very little, if not no, code. And the way how it does is that AWS Things Graph abstracts both devices and applications to web services as models. And then you have a visual drag and drop interface where you can put these models into a flow, which represents your application. And then with a click of a button, you can deploy these applications also down to a green grass device so that it executes even if you're not connected to the internet. And all of the intricacies of translating different protocols and making sure that the input of the one and the output of the other match, it's taken care by things graph. And I just gave you here a little overview of how the eye looks. I think because here we are in the Venetian and it's a hotel, I thought, okay, let's have a hotel workflow. So something like Tata consultants do, they do this um, hospitality services. So when you come, um, ideally your hotel room is already pre-configured. So that's just one choice that you can have. And again, you can see it's all the different elements here. It's either a device or a web service that you can buy it together. But I also wanted to give you another example from a company called Xcube. That's a, what they call digitally natively born company since 2008. That's when they were founded. And they're working on a pretty amazing problem. Um, here you see a cell tower. And cell towers, which is, of course, for getting your mobile phones or smartphones working. And apparently in India, where they have a lot of those cell towers, unfortunately, they had a lot of power outages. And in order to make the cell towers work, they have what they call this diesel engines, which then have a local generator of electricity. But unfortunately, the power outages, apparently, in India last pretty long. So once then, if there's no more diesel, then the cell tower goes down. So the idea was they were building a management and control system where they're actually checking how much fuel is there, and then they're dispatching and telling the government, oh, this cell tower there, the diesel is going low, you better send somebody. And in order to understand, because they don't have maps in India, it's a very different uh, uh, way, is they have lights on top, and then they flash the lights so that the guys with the diesel know, okay, that's why I need to go and fill the tank. And the way how they were building this is now they're using ThingsGraph for this automation, for the low uh, fuel tanks and the Situation is because all of these tanks are different, and instead of now writing an application for every tower, you just do it once with ThingsGraph, and then they can deploy it to all of the towers. I think a very amazing um, application. You're saying, how difficult can it be? Now it's not, apparently, anymore, and you can deploy it very fast. So that's AWS IoT ThingsGraph. It's available in preview since yesterday, so you can come, sign up, and then try it out, and uh, see whether you like it, and uh, be able to build applications at the edge more faster. So that concludes the part of what we call the control services. Now let's go into the last part, the data services. That's where maybe the biggest beef is where you said, okay, that's what I'm waiting for. Now I want to get something out of my data. And you say, okay, what's the big deal? I mean, there's analytics since we know the cloud and even before. So why is that so different for IoT? And the reason why IoT analytics is so different is because the data is simply not as structured as standard BI data. It doesn't come from a pre-structured environment. It comes from real-world sensors, machines that turn, sensors that are really cheap which fail. So it's extremely noisy. And it comes from literally tens, if not hundreds of millions of different sources. And it comes sporadically. So how do I handle that? Because I can't use the data as it is and feed it in sophisticated machine learning because then you get crap in and then you get really bad output as well. So we realized that all of our customers who were at that stage, now that they have the devices connected, 
had to go through always the same process. They needed to figure out how to ingest the data, how to pre-process, how to enrich it, how to store it, how to make sure that they can run the right queries, visualize it, and use it for more sophisticated machine learning. And that's why we launched last year AWS IoT Analytics, which does exactly what I said, taking care of all of the underlying infrastructure which you need to build up for analytics, which starts with the processing of the data, just making sure that you smooth it out. Enrichment, because think about it, a sensor reading might just be a byte saying it's 57. So, okay, what's 57? Is it temperature? And if it's temperature, is it Celsius? Is it Fahrenheit? And where does it come from? So you typically always have to enrich the data. Then you have to store it appropriately, and you might have heard about our announcement, but time stream, that we now have a time series database, because if you have millions of millions of time streams and you try to analyze them in a data warehouse, you wait for days for your results. So that was also why we built it like that. We abstracted it. We had this already under the hood. Then you can have your queries. It has an optimized query engine of um, getting the data off of your analytics, and then you can visualize it because it integrates with QuickSight, which you've heard also Visio was using. And last but not least, if you want to do much more sophisticated analysis, again, now we're coming back to this buzzword machine learning, it integrates seamlessly with Amazon SageMaker, because when you have your data scientists, which typically write Python in something called a Jupyter Notebook, it's fully integrated with this Jupyter Notebook, which are hosted in a SageMaker, but it looks all the same console to you, so it means you don't have to switch in between different services. You prepare your data in the pipeline, you have your notebooks, you execute them, you train your model, and then if you like, you can deploy it with the new functionality to really, really small devices going back to green grass. And we just launched a few new capabilities for AWS IoT Analytics as well. And one of them was that our customers said, who are using this now, saying, hey, wait a minute, it's fine, but you know what? We did analytics for years. Maybe we used MATLAB even in the past. So the, what we wanted to make sure is that you can bring your own analytics. And the way of doing so is that we bring your own containers. You can now package all of the existing analytics that you have, regardless where you have invented them, package them in a container and run them as part of the analytics workflow. And we also added something which is called windowing, and it's just a bit precise windowing because you don't want to always parse all of your time series data, but also latest. So that's the novel functionality for AWS IoT Analytics. And what you can do when you have a little bit more data insights, um, I thought nothing better to have Alex Shai on stage, who is the CEO of Vantage Power, and he will tell you a little bit what do they do with the insights of the data they generate with AWS IoT Analytics. Alex, welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs> Afternoon, everyone. Uh, pleasure to be here in Las Vegas with you. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my company, uh, what we use AWS IoT Analytics for, and in a sort of indirect way, actually show you how we're able to save lives using this kind of technology. So I started my business back in 2011 with the idea of uh, developing technologies to help electrify and connect heavy-duty vehicles. And the reason why that's important is because heavy-duty vehicles are disproportionately <clears throat> excuse me, disproportionately responsible for producing harmful emissions. So in the UK, where I'm from, uh, the average person has double the likelihood of dying prematurely due to poor air quality than you guys do have here in the United States. And around the world, 3.3 million people per year are dying prematurely due to poor air quality, again, produced by, in large part, these heavy-duty vehicles. Uh, that's more than HIV, influenza, and malaria combined. So this is, this is like a massive global problem. If we can be even a small part of that solution, that will be awesome. But the problem is, all these new technologies, they're going out into incredibly tough applications. If you put this in the back of a bus or a truck, that's driving 24 hours a day in some cases, going up and down hills in really tough environments. Um, and time and time again, you see that these technologies, they might work at the beginning, but three, four, five years down the line, they start failing. That might be acceptable in some applications, but this is safety critical and operational critical applications. So if things are going to go wrong, you really want to find out when and how. So if we bring this back to my particular business, we were about to put out hardware onto the road into buses in London, and quite honestly, we did not know 
how it would perform in five or 10 years' time. We couldn't go to the customer and say, trust me, this is gonna be okay. And the reason why we couldn't do this, this is brand new technology. We're living in a world where you know, batteries, uh, processes, things like that, they haven't been tested for the amount of time that these vehicles or devices are expected to be in service. So we needed to ensure that we could tell uh, that this stuff would be safe uh, and if something was gonna go wrong, we needed to know when. So how did we do that? We uh, decided to develop a system to predict these failures long before they happened. We partnered up with an amazing company called Luxoft that is a digital services consultancy business, um, and they're a partner of uh, AWS IoT. And using SageMaker, Greengrass, and analytics, it, literally within a matter of days, they were able to prototype a system that took in over a trillion data points from our battery packs operating out in the field to develop a model to help solve uh, this prediction problem. It's given us some truly remarkable capabilities. I'm now gonna dive into that solution in a little bit more detail to give you an idea of what's at stake here. So at the top of that slide is a picture of one of our battery packs. That has 1,760 little cells inside them. If you look at a Tesla Model S, for example, you've got over 9,000. And as you put many of these vehicles out on the road, you'll very ha quickly have millions, billions, if not trillions of these individual cells driving around in a whole range of different applications. And you can be guaranteed that statistically, they will fail. Now, in some cases, the driver or the operator might not even notice the difference. It might just be a small performance decrease or it could take the vehicle off the road, in which case you have really unhappy customers losing revenue, or it could be a major safety incident. Um, we were able to use AWS IoT analytics to predict which cell in over a thousand cells in our battery pack was going to go wrong, how it would go wrong, over a month in advance of it actually happening. And we were able to demonstrate that using real-world data from buses that are actually out there on the road at the present time. And I can't tell you what that allows you to do as a business in terms of making your customers happy and reducing your service and maintenance costs and ultimately improving the product. Because we're not waiting for a product to go wrong anymore. We are able to call up the customer and say, you know, we think there's a pretty high likelihood of something going wrong in the next month. Would you mind scheduling some downtime in the next couple of weeks? We've got a guy uh, local to the vehicle who can come and check it out. That makes your product more reliable. That makes you a much, much better supplier to those businesses. So we applied that to a battery pack technology. We thought, well, could we take this a little bit further? We noticed there's another problem uh, typical in hybrid powertrains where um, there was an issue with a drive belt that was driving a lot of other components like, an, like air compressors. Again, a safety critical function is the air compressor uh, powers your brakes. You can't really afford that going wrong. And we were able to use this system to predict that failure four months in advance. We are now bringing an entirely new capability to an industry that previously would have to send out a tow truck to go and recover a vehicle that had broken down on the side of the road. The repercussions through our business and through our customers has been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I'd like to thank um, Dirk for giving this opportunity to talk to you today. Uh, thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks. It is, it is just amazing what type of problems you can solve once you get the data. It's all about the data. It's all about the inside out of the data. And I had one inside as well, which was actually more sobering over the last years. Specifically in the last year when we were having this explosion of customers now starting to onboard, we realized that it's not only transforming um, a modern business or a consumer. You have seen you go into much more traditional areas like now in manufacturing and oil and gas. And I learned that there is a ton of data generated in all of them, but the sobering fact was that almost none of it is used. So if you just believe for a while some of the analysis that, for example, a company like McKinsey does, they analyzed oil rigs over the world and they figured out that less than 1% 
out of all of the data that these oregs produce, is actually ever used in decision-making. And if you, you called oil the black gold, and of course in the digital age, it's now data, so they mine data and then they throw it away. And that's not only happening on oil rigs, it's happening in manufacturing lines and mines and agriculture. And one of the reasons is it's, it's easy to have the sensors now starting to generate data. It's very difficult to produce um, meaningful insights locally or use it and, 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 and compute on that. And we talked about this on the device software. So we were thinking very hard and we were asking a little bit around and we figured out that we as Amazon had a similar problem in our fulfillment centers because we generated a ton of data and we have many of those fulfillment centers and we needed to figure out a way of saying, okay, how do we get our data for everything that happens with daily delivery which you wanted to bring down to ours and we had to build systems to go and get that data out of the factory industrial floor, put it to a data lake in one area where you can then look at it and get all of the insights you want. And that's how we then used technology that we had developed over years now in order to answer the question, how can I actually liberate data that it's locked in my facilities and how can I use it to get the benefit of the insights? And we announced yesterday as well a new service called AWS IoT Sitewise, which collects data out of your factory floor, which tags it and which you can model across assets and then generate what we call operational metrics and share them across everybody in your company in order to get the insights you want and do the process improvements. So again, how does this work? I mean, what you need is, again, it's physics, you need to have something locally which can access. And we um, have software, which is called the Sitewise Collector Gateway software, which you can install or even buy um, from a standard gateway manufacturer like um, Logic Supply, which have the ML500, or you use the Edge IoT um, Snowball Edge version of it. But in, in, in a nutshell is every gateway or product locally that you have that can run Greengrass can have this collector software. And what it does with the connector, which you said in Greengrass, with the secrets managers, is can log into your OPC UA servers, and the OPC UA is the typically standard for most of the industrial um, equipment management. It's, I think it was even just recently um, elevated in Europe and saying that's the standard for all and interoperability in the factories. And then we put a little bit of effort, again, learnings out of what we did in AWS, that you can have hundreds of thousands of these OPC UA streams ingested at the same time locally in the factory floor. You can then, from the cloud, configure that gateway, tag all of the streams, get it into the cloud, and then you can model assets. Because you're not necessarily interested in an OPC UA stream, which is just, again, a bunch of data coming from a sensor. But you would like to model how multiple sensor inputs create a conveyor belt or another machine. And then you would like to define operational metrics, like, for example, the overall equipment efficiency or OEE metrics. This is apparently very important in manufacturing and continuously generated. And then you have views. That's what we call asset views. We can go into the console and click and dig deeper. Where is something happening? What is the operational efficiency there? Or you can get access to this via APIs to build your own applications. And one of the companies we were working with is Bayer. Bayer, um, which bought Monsanto as well, is uh, committed to reducing crop waste. And that's what you're saying is, okay, what's crop waste? And um, I didn't know this is neither. And they were explaining it to us, saying is that roughly one-third one-third of all food that is produced actually has to be thrown away during production. And when you look at this globally, that makes 13% of all food globally that is thrown away. And we talk about $750 billion yearly of food waste. And of course, that's not only a problem for the planet, it's also an awful lot of money. And so they're saying is what we would like to do now as buyer is to use Sitewise and the insights of I can get from every machine into one place, and even if I get different crop qualities, that I can optimize my production process so that I reduce food waste in production. And if it's just a few percentage out of $750 billion, it's an awful lot of money. So that's what AWS IoT Sitewise does. It's again available in preview. You can sign up and then immediately try it out. As I said, Logic Supply already on their website when you go and want to have some of the industrial gateways, even have the Sitewise gateways ready. You can install it via Greengrass on all um, Greengrass cable gateways, or you can order a Snowball Edge, which comes then with Greengrass and Sitewise enabled. Which brings me to the last service I would like to bring to your attention, which we just have launched yesterday. 
And that is yet another insight that we realized talking to our customers who were going now into more complex solutions. Um, I talked about Pentair before, um, which is doing these beer filtration systems. And what we learned is doing many of the production um, processes is actually very complex. And very often you have to make something this is based on an expert decision understanding when is a produce ready for the next state. So you would like to understand the state of a beer in a production. And unfortunately, there is no such thing like a state sensor. So figuring out whether the beer is ready from production state A to B depends on temperature, pressure, alcohol content, color maybe, different type of chemicals, how long it was in the prior states. So it's a very complicated decision making. And therefore, we were saying is could we build a service which can detect complex events and states, and whenever that happens, take appropriate actions. That is AWS IoT Events. And AWS IoT Events does this at scale, so you can ingest thousands and thousands of sensor inputs, again, streaming. It has a memory, so it understands state, it knows in which state it is, and acts differently in the different states. You can then use simple Boolean logic to define what all of the if this then else clauses together to detect a state or an event and then associate an appropriate action, like, for example, dispatch a security or dispatch a, uh, a, a, a technician who's repairing something or just get the beer from one stage to the other. And Onica, um, we were talking about electrifying vehicles. We talked about really big vehicles. Um, Onica, which just launched, I think, two days ago, what they call their Iotanium platform, they are powering most of the scooters, electrical scooters that you can have around. And I don't know how many of you are um, from the valley, but apparently there is a really big problem when you roll out the scooters that just when there's a new company putting the scooters out, within two weeks, all of the scooters are stolen, or at least the majority of that. So I think that's a little counterproductive as well. And, and they were figuring out, okay, how could we help with this problem? And you're saying this, how difficult can it be? And they were just now using this events, and the event detection goes like this. They were saying is if a scooter has moved more than three yards and it's in any of the unrented states and within 60 seconds it's not getting bad, most likely something bad is happening. Please alert us. So that is how it works and it's saying, and, and the good thing is about this with IWS IoT events, you can scale this out for every single scooter. You can now get this out not just for one, but for hundreds of thousands of millions with a click of a button because that's about the scalability of what you build into the service. Again, a problem, think about it like a PLC, a programmer logic controller, at scale on steroids in the clouds. With that, I more or less have explained to you, um, hopefully a little bit more insightful, the type of services and software that we offer on the device side, on the control side, and on the data services side. I didn't really talk about something called the device tester. Um, that was launched yesterday as well. That is something, if you build devices, then we have test software that you can make sure that you understand whether your IoT implementation with Greengrass or Amazon Fiatos works. And we have something like a device qualification program so that you can then list your devices on our website so that customers understand, oh, these devices work out of the box. They have been tested. And again, I can also put this into a nice little architecture diagram. But again, please, I believe the cycle is a much better representation because it's not a stack. It is this virtuous cycle. And you have heard um, beforehand Alex talking about they are partners. And the last thing I wanted to bring to your attention is that IoT is very complex. It can span so many different use cases. It's going from the chipsets to building devices to the connectivity. Nobody, really nobody typically can do this alone. You need to be a really, really savvy company to do it yourself. And we are glad to have what we call our Amazon Partner Network where we have so many partners who help in all of the areas, whether it's on the edge, the connectivity and the solution, and they deliver now dedicated applications with their domain expertise, whether it's in the medical sector, whether it's in track and trace, whether it's industrial, really to help our customers to come to their results as fast as possible. And you're saying that was a lot of information. So if you want just to remember a few things, why IoT and why AWS IoT, there are four things I want to get to you to take home. One is IoT is really complex on board. You saw this from operating system to microcontrollers to really fancy event detection and analytical services. And we believe we just have a really big breadth and depth for all of the services, including the four that I announced. We have this superior integration with AI. 
so that you really can make the oxymoron of machine learning a real word now, so you can learn in the cloud, you can deploy to the edge and do this faster and cheaper than anybody else. We have the multi-layered security that I talked about built in, but also afterwards when you detect something, and we have an announced a few with the code signing that we were having here, or the secrets manager. And last but not least, when we talk about serverless, we not only talk about Lambda, but these services are all built serverless. Because whether you connect 100,000 devices or 4 million that Visio now does, so other of our customers approaching the triple-digit millions, you don't have to think about how you scale any of this. We just do it on your behalf. We scale up with you and down with you. And you, of course, only pay for what you really use. With that, the only thing which is left for me is to thank, of course, um, my two core speakers, both Bill um, from Visio and Alex from Vantage Power. And I also wanted to thank you, the audience, for your patience over the last hour and so. And with that, thank you very much. And have a great reInvent. <laughs>